We'd like to thank our sponsors, Glow Botanica, a company whose mission is to increase hormonal wellness awareness through education and create natural effective products for every phase of a woman's life. In partnership with Hormone University, Glow Botanica is committed to educating women so that they can advocate and take charge of their own hormonal health. Globotonica offers naturopathic solutions like tummy butter, which helps soothe all symptoms connected with hormonal imbalances, so you can finally glow from the inside out. Discover Globotonica and head to globotonica.com to check out the product tummy butter. You can take advantage of the special offer for Gateways to Awakening audience members with the promo code GATEWAY10. And don't forget to check out Hormone University to learn about hormonal health. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. In today's episode, I speak with Martha Beck, who spent a decade at Harvard before becoming a life coach, and this was not her original plan. Her passion and only real interest is the elimination of human suffering by any means available. And to this end, she delves deeply into the latest brain science, timeless spiritual texts, and some animal videos on YouTube. She's the author of a number of books, including The Way of Integrity and Finding Your North Star. I've read both books, which had a profound impact on my own career journey. So I'm so excited to welcome Martha to the show. So welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Likewise, likewise. So Martha, you say in your book um, that integrity is the cure for unhappiness, period. And I really love that so much. Um, So I'd love to just hear from you. What does it mean to be a person of integrity? Can you tell us more about this? Well, the word actually, it's, you know, it's kind of a Sunday school word for, for a lot of people, but in Latin, it just means intact or whole. And my premise is I, after 30 years of coaching people and thinking there were all kinds of things that make us miserable, I finally realized one day that the one single thing underlying all the suffering I had seen was that people were not able to be true to their whole selves. So they had split themselves. And almost universally, the reason was that they'd been pressured to do so by other people. So we're born with our true nature, but then we bump into our culture, our family culture, ethnic culture, whatever it is. And often we're rewarded for doing things that aren't really cognizant with our real nature, our true nature. So we typically, even before we know how to talk, we already start selling out and acting the way people around us want us to act instead of the way that we feel in in our deepest nature. So that loss of self, that split from self means that we're not in integrity, which is one thing. We're in duplicity, which is two things. And the result is that we feel cut in half. We feel split and miserable and lost. And um, when we heal that split, whatever the truth is, the ancient texts are all, they all agree and they're right. The truth sets us free from suffering. And uh, Martha, can you talk to us about how you were able to return to an integrous life in your own life? Because I think your journey is so fascinating and I'd love to just kick that off so we can dive into more uh, topics on the 
on the world of in, in, integrity. <laughs> well, thank you. I Before we started this interview, uh, I thought it was video, so I put my camera on. And then when I found <laughs> out it wasn't video, I trudged over to my bed in the middle of the day and lay down to do the interview because, and Yasmin <laughs> was like, I can still see you. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, welcome to me. Because I was born with a very low ability to tolerate suffering of any kind and uh, a tendency to fall apart easily, both emotionally and physically. And what that meant was that if I, you take an airplane that's in structural integrity, it will run well, it will fly, it can do all these fancy things. But if it, if it falls out of integrity, structural integrity, it starts to sputter and it may not take off or it may crash. And that's kind of what I am like. So I have a very strong need to please people. But every time I sell myself, my true self to do that, I break down. I start to feel impossibly unhappy. And then my body starts to break in a million different ways. And if I don't find my way back to my own truth, and if I don't live along the line of my own integrity, I can't function. I literally physically can't. So um, I, I have a lifetime of doing things that were people wanted me to do and then getting really sick or really miserable. You know, I went to Harvard and um, was trying to please that culture. Then I had a child who was diagnosed with Down syndrome before he was born. And I, I just could not uh, terminate the pregnancy, every, even though everyone told me I was throwing my life away. Um, and I'm very pro-choice. But it turned out I was throwing that life away. I was throwing away this life based completely on intellect so that I could live in a much, much more joyful and connected life uh, you know, of which my son is a huge part. And then, you know, I, I ended up going, I was raised Mormon, and then I ended up um, believing that there was some spiritual reality. And that made me think, well, what is, what is true for me spiritually? And it took me out of my native religion instead of into it. And uh, I wrote a book about that, which was not considered the right thing to do. And I also talked about having a history of sexual abuse, which was not copacetic either. So it just basically, um, at every turn, I found myself doing things to be true to myself that absolutely infuriated and appalled the people around me. <laughs> and that's just, I realized that when I sell out and my life looks great to the other people around me, I'm miserable. And when I don't sell out and I'm happy, other people are usually upset in some way, and that's just how things are. It's okay. You, we all face that same dilemma. If I do exactly what I want, what will my mother think? What will my friends think? What will my, you know, my peers think? And in every case, like there's never been a time I've seen someone sell themselves out and stay happy. Mm, wow. Martha, I want to double click on some of those things because I think so many people today are, I would say, selling themselves out and sacrificing a part of themselves. Um, I would call it like the archetypal prostitute within us <laughs> that's yeah, willing to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm just so curious how you were able to cultivate the courage to be able to walk away from the consensus. And because I think that that's where a lot of people are stuck. I have a lot of friends who said to me, I'm actually so miserable at my job, or, uh, you know, I'm just doing this because I'm getting paid a lot of money, especially, I think, 
you know, as you get older in the corporate game, there's a lot more money to lose. But I've I've also noticed that there's a lot of health issues that come up, right? There's I, there's no free lunch. So I'm just curious, like, how did you have the courage? Um, like, what what sort of was there a, a higher power? Um, was there just something within you? And how can like how do you coach or teach people? to let go of things that are that are no longer right for them. Yeah, I was a, at first it was just a lot of misery, um depression, physical illness, all of that saying I I have to find a way back to some measure of health and happiness or I just can't exist this way and I didn't want to kill myself but I would have loved to if like a blimp just fell on me and took me out. <laughs> um so I was really close to suicide for a very long time. And then I had, it was during the time that my son was, um, that I was pregnant with him. I started, the moment I was, I conceived that kid, I started having psychic experiences. There's really no other word for it. I was, a lot of it was something called remote viewing, Mm -hmm. where I would think of someone I loved and I would see whatever was happening to them in real time. And then I would talk to them later and realize that what I had seen was right. And so that blew away my materialism, you know, my, uh, the whole idea of a strictly material reality. And I was like, I don't even know what's true anymore. So then I started really seeking. And when he was diagnosed, I was very miserable. And because even though I, I didn't want to terminate the pregnancy, I still didn't want to have a child with a disability. Right. And it was like losing, it's like losing a child and then getting a child you didn't expect. So I went into hardcore grieving, but I also had these magical experiences. So I started leaning into the metaphysical and saying, you know, what's the purpose of what I'm going through from that perspective? And I think partly because of him, he's such a powerhouse of um, spiritual energy. He doesn't ever talk about it. He just is. Um, I had one experience in particular where I felt like there was a presence with me comforting me. And it was so stunningly like I, uh, the moment it happened, I I was like, I was sort of slumped on the floor in my apartment in Cambridge, very heavily pregnant and just sobbing and looking out at the night sky. And, um, and then I just felt like there was someone standing next to me and I looked and I, I could see someone standing next to me. Um, and it, it was the least surprising thing that has ever happened to me. Mm. It was absolutely abnormal and 100% normal for me. And I just fell forward. There were these feet. <laughs> <laughs> and I fell forward and rested my head against these calves that were solid and real. And um, and I kept saying over and over, I've been waiting so long. I've been waiting so long. And And then I felt as if something picked me up out of my body and held me. And then I was like, okay, that happened. That, that was real. It was the re it was more real than the miserable world that I see around me all the time. So then I was on a quest. I was just hell bent on heaven. You know, (laughs) I was going to find that power, whatever it was. And I tried, I, learned everything I could about all these religions and I followed all the rules and I did all the prayers. I did like, I was sort of an autodidact in every religious tradition (laughs) and, and some of them worked. 
And I began to have a reliable sense of access to a spiritual source. And that has, that single thing was what gave me, I knew I would lose it if I lost my integrity. If I went even one step away from my truth, I would lose it. And I can't stand ever to lose it again. So whatever is in my integrity, I, I will do to stay with that, wow. that source of comfort. That is so powerful. I, yeah, I love that. And I think there's also just something so, I don't know, relaxing about just feeling supported by the world rather than feeling like you're alone and having like to fight through things yeah. yourself. So I really love that so much. And yeah. And, and, you know, you talk a lot about uh, Dante from the divine comedy um, in your yeah. book. And so I love to know, like, why was that so integral to your understanding of self. And I, you remember, I think I, I vaguely remember you talk about like the dark wood of error as well in that. So yeah, yeah. you could just share that with us. Yeah. Yes. I mean, here's the weird thing. I wrote this book proposal and I was like, I'm going to write a book about integrity and how to be happy. And I'm going to, the whole framework for the book will be uh, Dante's divine comedy. And there are, because I see this as a metaphor for our journey from misery to happiness. And I think Dante probably had what in Asia would have been called an enlightenment experience. And I'm just going to follow the divine comedy. So I wrote it all up and I sold the book. And then I was like, I literally don't remember why I decided to do that. I just wrote it down as if it were my phone number or something. I wasn't even thinking. And then later I went and I was reading through the Divine Comedy going, I hope this really holds up, you know. <laughs> and, and what I found is that um, the metaphor I loved that had really kind of saved me from all my suicidal ideation as a, as a teenager was that I read The Inferno, first book of the Divine Comedy. And um, it's about Dante going down into hell and he has to go deeper and deeper and deeper and things get worse and worse and worse. And he gets to the center of the earth. He you literally can't go any lower. And there he finds, you know, Catholic dogma. He finds Lucifer, the dark angel, locked in a lace, lake of ice. And so the, he says, OK, we're done. I can't go down any further. And his guide, the poet Virgil, says, no, no, keep going down. You have to keep going. And he's like, are you crazy? There is no more down. And Virgil says, no, down you go. And he actually has to climb onto the body of the monster and uh, which, you know, beyond horror. And he has to lower himself down the monster's body when he gets right to the hip area of the center gravity switches because he's now climbing away from the center of the earth. And that means he's going up instead of down. So he has to turn around and, and, and climb instead of going lower. And the metaphor for me is the only way out is through, right? This is the therapy journey that so many people take. You've got to go into your pain. And if you keep going deeper, it turns into the way to heaven and I remember reading that at 18 and going that for some reason it chimed. And a lot of this book is about the chime of truth or the ring of truth. How when something is true for our bodies, our hearts, our mind, all our meaning making systems, there's a kind of whoa, 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 whoa. And I just knew that that was a metaphor that applied to me. And as I wrote this book, reading through it, I didn't remember why I chose Dante, but man, a close reading of that poem, this dude was writing an absolutely detailed psychological map 
from the dark wood of error where he starts, which is basically, he says, in the middle of my life, I came to myself in a dark wood. I had no idea why I was there or how to get out or it just was awful. And every client I've ever had comes to me saying exactly what Dante said there. Like, what? Why? I'm not. Why am I not happy? And it's murky and it's unpleasant. And in order to get them to, to paradise, we have to walk them through whatever's making them unhappy. And that means a trip to the inferno, but through the other side. Mm. And what comes after that is incredibly joyful. Wow. It, Martha, can you talk about an example of someone that you've coached, uh, obviously no names, but maybe at a high level um, of someone who had to walk through that inferno and and what, what oh kind gosh, of yes. magic has happened? I mean, I, I sort of, you know, I think we've all, I think we're all um, in culture, like dealing with, with our shadow side. I think so many of us yeah. have suppressed it. Uh, rather yeah. than embrace it. And I think, yeah, it's, it's just an, it's an interesting path to walk, right? Cause it's so painful when you're in it. And, yeah. but the other side, most people just can't see the other side, right? It's just like this dark tunnel with no light. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you yeah. can't, you don't know it's there. That's the challenge of it. So yeah, there have been a lot of people. Um, one woman in particular, I remember you'd think, that she, you know, she's very famous, uh, much beloved and awarded actress. And you would have thought there was nothing wrong with her life at all. Um, but in fact, she was in a classic domestic violence situation and she just hit it better than most women because she's a really good actress. Um, so because of the publicity, it was very, very challenging for her to try to get out. And the, the husband was really leveraging that. Like he would threaten to go to, to ruin her reputation and do all these things in public and lie about her. And he was really, he was controlling her children and it was really, really bad. And it, it just, this went on for about a year. And then she finally made the choice to leave. And the most, and in the week that she finally left her husband, all these people rose up in this strange way, like a, a, a long string of people began sort of presenting themselves to say, come over to my place for a week. Then, okay, I'm a newspaper editor. I've got you covered on this. Then I've got, I mean, there was wow. just everything she needed just lined up, but it was, and it, None of it was in advance. It would come up exactly as she needed it. And the way the the husband was silenced by his own, he was basically hung by his own petard. It was very, it was complicated and weird. And it was so, like, it could not have been coincidental. Wow. It was like a bucket line of angels lined up for her. And, and just, and so nobody in the public ever knew the story. Wow. But I got to sort of watch it from behind the lines and they were just like, oh yeah, amicable divorce, no problem. Mm, and wow. um, yeah, and I've seen that much more often with people who aren't famous, that kind of thing. So it's not just for the privileged. Wow. Wow. It's fascinating. And um, in the book Integrity, you have this line, which I just laughed out loud when I read it. You said, if whatever you're doing isn't working, 
don't do it harder. Can you share what you mean by that? <laughs> well, that comes from a wonderful uh, woman who went through my coach training. Her name's Sonia Alar, and she wrote a one-woman play, which was brilliant. And one of the things she was talking about in the play was uh, advice for men in the bedroom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to please their their women. If what you're doing isn't working, don't do it harder. <laughs> and every woman that I've told that to laughs out loud. So we all know what that means. Um but what happens is culture raises us to think that we will be made happy by following its particular precepts. So in ours, it's it's fame, wealth, and power, right? And somebody else is in a different culture, it might be something else. But so we get fame, wealth, and power, like my friend, the movie star, and life still sucks. And we're like, well okay, I guess I need more fame, wealth, and power. I mean, that's why I kept going back to Harvard for three more, you know, I went once and I, I came out and I wasn't happy. So I went back, got a master's. I wasn't happy. I went back and got a PhD and I still wasn't happy. And I was like, like, before I get another PhD, maybe I should try a different method. Because <laughs> this is definitely not working. So yeah, when we don't know what to do, we do what we know, we dig in deeper. And that's like falling asleep at the wheel, waking up with the car going out of control and hitting the gas pedal instead of the brake. Wow. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of us, um, are just sort of in a collective hypnosis, you know, like we're just, yeah. we're kind of just moving in a direction that we, we think we're supposed to have. I, I heard someone call it an assembly line life. And, mm. you know, it's like Ooh, this, so true. right? It's like, this is in this part of your life, you're supposed to do this. And this part of your life, you're supposed to do this. And I think so many people are just confused about like who they are anymore and, and what is it that they truly want. And, well, um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's not a metaphor. Like the, the, what we call a job was invented basically by Henry Ford, who said people should be used like machine parts, like everything is just matter. So line people up and make them do what robots could do, but they didn't have any robots. And the modern job where you get up at a certain time, you all assemble in a building at the same time, you all do the same things for the same company. That was based on factory production. And that's what we raise our children to do in their straight lines of desks, all the same size. Just so you know, who sent many letters of appreciation, plus a medal to Henry Ford for creating the modern job. Guess who? Hitler. Oh my gosh. And that's the modern job. Wow. It's just like, yeah. Oh my gosh. You know, it's so funny that you bring that up because I've been telling a lot of my friends, like I've been on my, I've had my own, uh, you know, business for the last four years and I try not to do the nine to five because I think it's just, there's something about the collective doing this thing together that makes it just feel I don't know, like inauthentic to me. Like, I don't, I don't think most humans are, we don't, we are not machines. Right. And we're not animals. And so we have, well, we are animals and animals don't do well when you like <laughs> <That's> machines. Because <laughs> yeah, we are animals. We don't do well. We don't do well with this like linear, like, you know, working style from whatever it is, nine to five, nine to six. Yeah. So I just yeah. really try to stay away from that. And I've been telling a lot of my friends, even the ones who are entrepreneurs, because they are all following this mode of nine to five. And I just think it's insane. I know. I think it's insane. If you're an entrepreneur, <laughs> why would you do that? I, I've seen this so many times. I've seen, like, I had one 
one woman that I coached who was like, she'd grown up in this basic, a tiny religion that was very cult-like and all her misery went back to this and all her behavior was so, and she said, and my biggest problem is I can't get my kids to go to church. And I was like, the same church? She was like, of course. I'm like, what? It's like, I don't go to that church anymore. It was horrible, but they've got to go. I mean, how else are they going to grow? It's this weird repetition compulsion we have where we take the thing we hated. And when we have power over our own means of production or whatever, we think, well, that worked. Let's do that again. Sorry, I get a little exercised. Oh, I love that so much. As I lie here on my bed. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny. People are like, let's just put our kids through the same exact schools that we went to because we want to, I think, manage the risk of like not of the unknown, essentially. Right? I know. It's just, yeah. yeah, it's so bizarre. Yeah, I've been on a I've been on a shtick lately, just telling people like, do not, even if you have to, like try to just work based on your energy, not um this one guy actually said this um recently, uh Hitton Shaw. He said, You're tired because you manage your um, what is it? You manage your time, not your energy, which I loved. I just love that quote. Mm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, oh, go ahead, Martha. No, I was just going to say words to live by. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And you, you have like every other line in your book is, is quotable. Um, I, I want well, to technically they're all quotable. They're just not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they're, no, they're actually. It is all, possible to quote any of them. <laughs> <laughs> they're all very interesting. I'm, I'm just so. Oh, uh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> I'd like to also talk about, since we've been talking about the idea of success, um, and why people achieving their goals is just not fulfilling. And, and you talk about this metaphor of like Mount Delectable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can you share? And that's straight out of Dante. Yeah. Dilettosimonte. It, it, his phrase, it means Mount Delectable. And it's a little bit of the divine comedy that doesn't get much attention. When he's running around before he enters hell in the dark wood, there are all these people lost but he sees a, a very beautiful mountain that's being, the, the sun is rising and the mountain looks all golden and glowing and people are climbing to the top and it looks like a great place to be. And he's like, that's what I need to do. So he starts climbing this mountain and it's exhausting. And he's, and he has to crawl. He's so tired. It just is weirdly aversive, but he keeps trying because it looks so good. And then it turns out all these uh, carnivorous animals start showing up. And he talks about them in terms of emotional states. So there's a lion that is so frightening, the air is afraid of it. And there's a panther that is so ravenous and it's, it's insatiable. It can never be satisfied. And there's a wolf that makes everyone so sad they, they just cry uncontrollably. So he's talking about emotion and he's talking about his exhaustion. And it's about when we don't know what our real soul's purpose is, and we're all climbing a mountain of success based on some cultural paradigm, because it looks so damn good from the bottom. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's miserable. And things keep arriving to chase us away from it because it's actually not the way our souls are meant to go. So that's Mount Delectable is the, the tower of power you see around you on the internet, on television, in politics. And it's, it's a nasty rat race and it's getting nastier all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you think that if you're on your life path and things are just supposed to flow easier, like you're not supposed to have these, these kind of moments of resistance, like how does that work in your life? 
Well, you have moments of difficulty because there's a joy in that. Um, psychologist who looked at, at happiness found that the the state called flow, people always think that means that you're just floating without moving, just sort of on, a, on an inner tube. Flow is actually the psychological state we hit when we're doing something meaningful and joyful for us at a level that's almost too hard. So if it's too easy, it's boring. So it's, it is to our advantage to work like demons, sorry, wrong metaphor for this, but to work really hard as long as the thing that we've chosen is our heart's desire and our life's purpose. Mm. And then it's it says in the Old Testament, the strong man rejoices to run the race. There's a feeling of being on your purpose where your skills and your experiences make you fit for that cause. And then you put every bit of you know, blood, sweat, and tears out there because it's like playing a game. It's fun. It's joyful. And that is, that's the real road to joy, not ease and not the pile of stuff that we all think we need, mm. but the joy of the strong man running the race. Mm. I'm going to play that section on a loop <laughs> for myself. <laughs> Just well, you're doing it. I can tell. <laughs> oh, but, you know, it's... It's definitely, it's hard though. I think, um, I think especially with so much happening in the world in the, this last year with the pandemic and um, just so much uncertainty, I think we're all sort of like looking for some anchor, something to hold on to. And, you know, the material world is easy, easier, I think in some ways yeah. and harder than others. So um, yeah, it's like a, it's a constant remembering, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's such a gift to have everything pulled out from under you. I, I had that a few different times in my life and a lot of people come to me for coaching when they've had that. Um, and the pandemic was the first time the same rug got pulled out from under every single per person on earth within like a week. You know, like yeah. every single life on earth was affected within a few weeks time. And to me, that was a, it's a weirdly hopeful thing because what can change exponentially for ill can also change exponentially for good. Mm. And there is potential for us if we create a goodness that is infectious enough, we can change the whole world in a week. Mm. I love it just that. has to be the right vector. Yeah. Have you seen, you know, based on your coaching, people make like very drastic changes in their life since the pandemic started? Yeah. A lot of, I mean, everybody had some kind of drastic change, even if it was not ha hanging out with friends or relatives, not traveling anymore, but the whole retreat from the workplace and working from home and zoom meeting instead of in the flesh meeting, um, that, was I think one of the biggest cultural changes I've ever witnessed and everybody was doing it. And, um, what it showed was what was possible. I mean, I wrote a book like 10 years ago where I said, what we need is to use these magical technologies that allow us to be together without actually physically being together to transfer what I call the technologies of magic, but which are actually the spiritual values of, you know, the ancient spiritual values, passed down through all people, if we can find the things that truly light us up as spirits and the things that bring us into compassion and, and into love for each other and to love for the world, 
And we use things like Zoom instead of jet planes that use massive amounts of rocket fuel. This is the way we heal the world. Mm. Um, Yeah, not with a bang, but a million trillion Zoom meetings. But I thought people would have to choose it. And then I watched it being mandated by nature. And I just, part of me was, you know, terrified and horrified by all the suffering and the, and the death. And part of me was jumping up and down going, oh my God, it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting. It was like a forced, uh, you know, a forced course correction, um, on life. And I, and like yeah. you said, for some people it was like the worst year of their life. And for others, it was the best. And and I think just navigating that has been challenging, right. In terms of how to reintegrate back into society. I think we're all very confused, you know, how, well, how that you know works. What's interesting. Navigation is the single, like uh, the coaches I train, the method I use is called wayfinding, which is um, borrowed from an anthropologist who studied the the navigators of the South Pacific, who were like the most genius people ever. But um, my little team, we run this little how to navigate your life company. And there are like six of us. And we all met at the end of 2019. And we every year we do this, we go around and everybody talks about their own personal goals. And then their goals, what they'd like to see us do professionally. And at the end of 2019, we all met in California and we went around the room and everyone said, it's the strangest thing, but I don't have any goals for the next year. I have no personal goals. I just want to be happy and be with my family. And then we got to one woman and she said, I don't have any goals either, but I just keep feeling at some level the words, be ready. And we all just got this incredible chill. We all looked at each other and went, what, what's going to happen? And we didn't know. This was December 2019. So what we did was we all said, something's going to happen and we're going to respond to it and we're going to figure it out. We're going to navigate it when it hits. And it was it was like we were given a month ahead of time a very, very clear like set of instructions. It was, it's one of those things when the divine just sort of pokes its head out of the world and goes, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you're sort of hanging loose and waiting to be ready, you can turn, you can pivot very quickly and you can follow your purpose and your heart, even through shifting waters and, um, yeah, you get the help you need. I believe that. Mm. I love that. And speaking about your life purpose, uh, you wrote the book, Finding Your North Star, which I read many, many years ago, and mm. it profoundly helped me navigate my own professional path and you know, helped with my own Aww. course correction. Yeah, it was, it's so- I'm it's, so glad. It's, yeah, it's so interesting because I think at the time I, I didn't know- you know, the fullness of who you were, you know, I read the book and then years later I read, you know, your other book and it just heard a lot more about you online and, and through other sources. And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's the same author of <laughs> Finding Your North Star, which was so powerful for me. I still actually kept the book and looked at it recently because I was like, oh yeah, what did I write in it? And you know, just so it was just Aww. very powerful. <laughs> so that's so great. <laughs> 
And yeah, and I loved the title of the book. I I have just a, a connection to the word star. I, I made a, a short film with the with the word star. So that in itself. Did you just... know? Sorry, I just have to cut in here <laughs> that every canto, or not every canto, but the three books of the Divine Comedy, all all three of them end on the word star. Really? Wow. And when I was writing Finding Your Own North Star, I was sitting there thinking, okay, what's this sort of a, a thing that doesn't move and you can always find it and it will always guide you? I was, you know, playing with metaphors. And I thought, oh, wait, I can talk about the North Star. That'll be, okay, that's a good metaphor. And my husband at the time called me on his cell phone. He was in the car. And I said, what's up? And he said, something's wrong with our car. And then he said, Oh no, now it's working. He said the the compass was just stuck on north and I couldn't get it to change, but now it's working again. <laughs> so again, it's these god winks that peek in all the time and um and now here we are like a hundred years later and you're telling me that it worked for you and you love the word star. <laughs> yes. Wow, I didn't realize also that uh, Dante's the books ended with the word star. Um wow. Wow. My short film is called A Star in the Desert. So it's a little bit different. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) That's beautiful. Well, there's something we truly are made of stars. Like all the matter in your body was born in the heart of an exploding star. And it made its way to this planet. And uh, we are literally walking stardust. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so it's so insane to think about that as a human being because we we think I think a lot of us spend a lot of time in our ego and you know, in our own you world. <laughs> We're just like, "Oh, I wouldn't know what that's like." <laughs> <laughs> I every, every time a friend tells me like, you know, about someone talking about her and I was like, I'm always like, "Listen, most people are actually just thinking about themselves. Don't even worry about what other people think because they're not thinking about right. you." Right. So, um, but, but you wrote this book and it just profoundly changed my own professional path. I thought it was just so inspiring. Can you tell us why you decided to write this book and, and your own journey in, in writing it? Like, what did it reveal about your own self? Cause I think that when you write a book, you also learn a lot about your, yourself in the process. So. Oh yeah. Well, I, I had just left Mormonism. Mormonism is a life world religion, which means that it dictates pretty much every aspect of your day. It's like Orthodox Judaism or any ultra-Orthodox religion. So I had left that. And so the whole set of instructions I'd learned as a child was gone. In the meantime, I had I was in a very difficult situation. I had um, three kids under five, one with a disability, and I had really bad autoimmune diseases that made it almost impossible for me to walk or stand or use my hands. The fact that I'm lying down right now is is born from a lifetime of being ultra cautious, like treating my body like a raw, fragile eggshell that I have to take care of. And so I was like, I have to think my way through the structures of the world. I can't just go out and be tough and strong and and mean and whatever it takes to win the rat race. So I very carefully figured out, okay, how do I live the the life? How do I function in a way that is sustainable? And for me, it meant finding my absolute core values and then moving straight toward them with no variation. And I happened to have a part-time job teaching business school at the time. And my business school students wanted to hear more about you know, I'd say stuff about life in general, not 
business and they would say, wait, tell us more. So I ended up creating a course called career development that was really about a life design. And that became finding your own North star, because I thought I was just figuring out what everyone else already knew. But my students kept telling me, wait, 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 the part where you say, if I like it, I should probably do it. And if I don't like it, I shouldn't do it. Wait, could you go back? And (laughs) that is unfathomable. Nobody's ever said that to me. And I was like, really? (laughs) All right. I thought finding your own North star was the most boring, self-evident, everybody's already doing this book in the universe. And it still stuns me that people weren't already like savvy to all that stuff. Yeah. Wow. And I'd like to also double click on some of the things that you bring up in that book. Um, And the pantomime of the essential self. Can you talk about what you meant by that phrase? Well, I think I have to tell you, I went and Googled it. What the Dickens I was talking about? Like, I have no idea. I write these books. I don't read them. So I was like, okay, well, I can't find it online, but I think I meant. Oh, that's so funny. I mean, because it's been a while. It's been like, what, 10 years ago. So. Oh my gosh. It's more like 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, what I think it means is, if you talk about the distribution of, of the, the integrous self versus the culturally bound self in the brain, the, the culture feeds into the left side of the brain, which is where all the verbal um, parts of the neuroanatomy reside, because we have a very, and we have a very left brain culture. It's very analytical. That's what the left side of the brain does. It knows language. So it is the servant of culture because language is the instrument, the ultimate instrument of culture. On the right side of the brain is the part that doesn't talk, but is very creative without any fear and also connected to the sense of a universal intelligence and and divine consciousness in the universe. So in my favorite book, The the Tao Te Ching, um, Lao Tzu, the author of The Tao Te Ching says, those who talk don't know, those who know don't talk. And he's talking about those who know the connection to the divine path. In other words, the right side of the brain, which does not talk. So what I said in Finding Your Own North Star is that you've got your social self and then you've got your essential self, which is your essence and what you need. And basically, you could break it down to the right side, left side of the brain. So when the the right side needs to get a message to the left side, it can't use words. So instead, it acts it acts things out for us. You know, it'll it it crippled me so that I could not do the things that my soul didn't want that my left side thought I had to do. It will, you know, if you try to go out with someone who scares you, your body will, will shy away and turn away and close your arms across your chest. And it's always signaling. This is what's true for me at an emotional, spiritual level, but it doesn't always have access to words. So it uses pantomime. I think that's I'm, I'm that's brilliant. <laughs> that's thank you for breaking that down. And and it's also interesting because I I think a lot of people who go to work and are not happy with, let's say, work end up like getting sick, right? There's just a lot oh, of yeah. ways. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that that plays out. I mean, I feel like I it played out in my own life um, when I felt like I you know was living just 
the life that I couldn't believe, you know, it's almost like, what is, I think Gay Hendricks talks about this, the, um, you know, when, when you, what is it called again? I forget. Um, oh gosh. Well, I can't remember now, but you basically self-sabotage also. So yeah. I, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. When you're going against your own values, it's, it, this is why a lot of criminals get caught. People who in other ways are quite intelligent will do things like robbing a house, stealing a camera, <laughs> but before they leave the house, taking a picture of themselves with the stolen goods and then leaving it on a table, like, <laughs> because part of the part the you know, they don't want people stealing from them. So that the part of them that doesn't like stealing is trying desperately to sabotage the part that thinks stealing is good. So it's interesting. <laughs> Wow. And Martha, you also talk about uh, some of the ways that you instruct people to do like a inventory and, you know, due diligence of their own life. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about what, what that exercise is? Because I think it'd be cool for some people who are listening to even, you know, do this own uh, exercise in their own time. Well, I think it's about, I, and again, I'm not sure which book or which exercise this is, but <laughs> what I would have people do is sit down and, and just say, here's what's really going on in my life. And then write down it. And what will come out first is all the, the resume items and the number of children and everything. And then I would say, okay, but what is going on in your inner life? What's like, what, where are you happy? Where are you unhappy? Where are you angry? Where are you sad? Uh, and they can start tracing which aspects of their behavior are actually on purpose for them as opposed to the ones that they're doing just for the culture's sake because they were trained to do them. And then you, you basically end up sitting there with, if you follow this path far enough, you end up sitting there with an alternative to culture. And I don't mean just going to an alternative culture. I mean an alternative to culture. Um, my, my doctorate in sociology, uh, part of my dissertation was I was looking at people who leave society altogether. And these people were the mystics of every culture. They, they would leave, they would go away into the woods or into a cave or into the desert or something. And they would have a direct connection with the divine. And they would come back and either they got killed because people were so pissed off at them, excuse my language, or they formed altogether new cultural um, modes, which Dante did, you know, the, the divine comedy really recreated Italian culture. And so when you do a personal in inventory and you find out what your truth is and you start to live it, you may bring things into the mind of, of the world that have never been here before. And the, the human population is like a neural network in the brain. When one person brings that insight in, the whole brain learns it. The whole world can learn it. And like that's the power of doing an internal inventory in a time of effortless mass communication. Mm, I love that so much. Well, I'm going to create uh, a new version of work <laughs> in the in the neural networks of the human mind. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what I think we need. Write down a hundred things you'd want to do in your ideal uh, job and then design your life around that. Mm, I love that. So Martha, I know we're coming at time um, and I just think you are brilliant and have so many nuggets of wisdom to share with our audience and so many different like, you know, verticals really. So um, I wanted to ask. Verticals, you know, how ironic since I am horizontal. <laughs> <laughs> 
what are some of the decisions that you made in your life that felt difficult to make but important? I know you kind of mentioned a couple of them early on uh, about your son. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious, like, were, were there any other... You said you had you had uh, had the experience of Dante's uh, Inferno a couple times, or you know, oh yeah, 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 lots and uh, in in many waves, and and you know, continuously. Anytime you feel unsure of yourself, you go through a version of the whole Divine Comedy from from being adrift and not knowing why to facing the reasons why, the beliefs that made you abandon yourself, and then when you rethink those beliefs, then you face uh, the choice to, of doing what's true for you, even if other people don't like it, which I think is Dante's Purgatory, the second book. So the inner part, I was always willing to do, I've always been willing to go in and face my demons. I don't care how much it hurts to get out of the, the dark wood, because the dark wood is really bad for me. But after you've come to your truth, you're talking to your therapist or your coach or whatever. And you then face the challenge of enacting that in a way that is visible to others. So you go and you you become the child who says the emperor has no clothes. You risk a lot of antipathy, a lot of hostility if you show up as different, if you, you show up with a story no one wants to hear. So it's the living out loud that has been the hardest thing for me. I did not want to be recognizably famous. I wanted to make enough money to write and be my, my, my life stream was to see someone reading a book that I wrote and, and being changed by it, but not knowing who I was. Mm. So I just wanted anonymity. So every single time it's been like, no, now you've made this choice that was hard for you. And now write a book about it. You know, you had this child with Down syndrome, write a book that undermines the idea of intellectualism as the value of human life. You mm. left your religion. Okay. Write a book that undermines a lot of people's faith. Like really just because I'm telling my own story. Yeah. Living out loud is the scariest of all things. And it's what I think it's what you're doing. It's what a lot of people feel compelled to do. And it's not for fame. It's because it's time for the world to change. And each of us is needed to change it. Mm, yes. Yeah. And and I think it's so courageous because I was just telling my partner this, that there's 95% of the world are like consuming and criticizing essentially. And then like, there's like the 5% who are creating. And I think that there's, mm. a, yeah, there's a lot of projections made towards the creators because yeah. I think a lot of people are just like dying to create. But then to be a creator, we also have to be comfortable with criticism and just you know, yeah. having, you know, being put on in a public arena and I'm just I'm so happy and proud that you <laughs> wrote all those books and I we didn't get a chance to cover this but I um there's a few folks in my life who um have been caretaking uh, a loved one whether it's a sibling or a parent or mm. someone who has um some I'd say mental health uh or you, you know something that that like there's a caretaking role there and I just think the right the 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 idea of caretaking is something a lot of us don't talk about in culture and how yeah how hard it is but also how rewarding it is at the same time yeah. so well the culture is set up to basically denigrate or or 
not reward anyone, even even parents of small children. But then when you give up that individual, um, you know, your corner office to care for someone who's sick or old, even though your heart knows that it's right, and even though your soul feasts on the rightness of it, the culture will will knock you down for doing it. We'll give you no value, no credence. So it it's a lonely road. And I'm really glad you're speaking to that because the best we can do is stand up for each other and share the experience until the culture changes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a topic I think a lot of us feel has not been given the weight it deserves. So. Oh my uh, God. You're so right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I could talk to you for a long time. So I'm sad to wrap this up, but um, what what do you want to tell our listeners about their health and wellness and well-being? What would be your main takeaway to our audience? Well, just, I mean, I don't want to get all uh, science-y professory, but my whole life I've studied the relationship between physical health, mental health, and living your life's purpose, because I believe that we all have a purpose. And I would re- there was a time when I was diagnosed with a very uh, painful illness that's incurable. It doesn't usually go into remission. Mine is. But I had, uh, they gave me a little pamphlet when they diagnosed me. And they said, uh, and it was a for sure diagnosis. They did a surgery and checked. And they gave me this pamphlet and I opened it at random. And it said, to keep from committing suicide, remind yourself of your religious beliefs. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Which is like, now I'm back to my childhood again. So I lay down, I rested, I rested, uh, and it, the symptoms were getting worse. And they, there was a hotline, and I called the hotline and I said, okay, I've been lying here resting forever and my symptoms are not getting worse. I mean, they are getting worse. And the woman, God bless this woman on the line, she said, well, if your heart wants to dance, then lying down is work and dancing is rest. So what do you really want to do? And I was like, I want to get out of this damn bed. This is not today. This was earlier. And say, and 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 go do the, the things that I've been doing because I've been sick so much. And she said, go do them. And I went and did them. And it, I was in excruciating physical pain, which I no longer remember. What I remember is what I did what I was able to do. So I'm not telling people to get out of their sick beds and go do things. I'm telling you that do the dance your heart wants to dance, fight through anything to do that, whatever that is, dance it. Because ultimately your health and wellness, what happened to me was that my diseases went into remission. And I believe it's because I was living my heart's desire. I was living on the line of my heart, mind, body, soul, all chiming together and that feeling heals the body and the mind so try it Mm. amen i'm like snapping my fingers over here (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) i'm I'm gonna go dance uh my own desires right after this so wonderful martha thank you so much and are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you and your books are all on amazon i believe yeah yeah and and I have a website, MarthaBeck.com, so it will take you to like old articles I wrote in magazines and blog posts, whatever, videos. I don't even know. I rarely go there, <laughs> but I think it's good. I think awesome. It's okay. 
Awesome. Great. We'll add that to the show notes so that people can go straight to your website. And thank you so much again for your time, Martha. Thank you. Yes, Such a me. pleasure. It's been a really fun conversation and I'm so excited by what you are doing in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about living a life of integrity and trusting your inner wisdom with Martha Beck. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.